listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This Week in Pharmacy, I am your host, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. I'm so glad that you're here with me. I am excited about today's show. I'm always excited about our shows. Um, this is a, a publication that is dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the pharmaceutical profession. If you are interested in being part of the leading podcast in the pharmacy industry, the number one podcast stream if you know what streams are and RSS feeds, then you know what I'm talking about. We're getting 120,000 listeners per month to our content seven days a week with about 52 different hosts. U.S. Farmy is here. Pick up your uh, T-shirt. Every T-shirt's proceeds go to our veterans. That is called usfarmy.com. Please pick up your T-shirt. I'm excited today. We have so much to talk about. We're going to be talking with the CEO of Nectar. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, technology and allergy, um, um, predictive um, modeling and, and data and how to control allergies better and how this impacts pharmacists. We're going to be talking with the writer and founder of Pharma the Movie. You have to hear about this. It's a movie. It's an amazing movie about a um, Dr. Francis uh, this amazing scientist in the 1960s that uncovered and blew the top off of the FDA's processes instead of trying to push things through. And um, we're going through some transparency in our pharmacy industry. I have some news first before we get into today's guests. So um, if you're listening, please be uh, ready um, to follow along. If you have uh, no ability to look at what you're seeing, and of course on YouTube and on our live programming, don't worry about it. This is going to be pushed out through thisweekinpharmacy.com. Please subscribe. Tell us what news, uh, what we're missing in This Week in Pharmacy. If you'd like to be a guest, reach out to me. First of all, let's talk about the uh, US uh, FTC settles with health information uh, firm from SureScripts over an antitrust lawsuit. This is uh, big. I think that um, we have uh, things to think about when we're talking about um, um, regulation and what's happening um, with, with organizations that kind of get tangled up with some of our regulating bodies. Um, so think about this. So the FTC said that SureScripts was a monopoly and that they had unfair practices coming from the Federal Trade Commission about their um, electronic prescribing uh, technology and platforms. Um, it's very interesting. This just came out recently. If you're listening, um, look that up, SureScripts and the FTC. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is not to pick on SureScripts because actually SureScripts has helped the uh, pharmacy profession immensely as well as the, um, the Pharmacy Podcast Network as a sponsor. Uh, however, um, this is a prime example of how um, big organizations start to corner and uh, leave out the ability for com competition. This leads me to our second 
um, uh, point on today and this week in pharmacy. Let's talk about the Senate targeting pharmacy middlemen amid the drug price deal talks and how important PBM reform is. So PBM reform and the three largest PBMs that control the majority of our prescription processing, just like SureScripts, is doing things to squeeze out competition. First of all, our independent community pharmacies throughout the nation, there's about 19,000 of them, serve parts of our nation that have zero healthcare services. And there have been um, pharmacies who have gone out of business because of PBM practices and monopolies uh, or oligopolies to be technically correct. So I want you to be aware that the Senate is starting to really corner in on, this has been going on for 22 plus years. I entered pharmacy in 20, uh, 2004. So PBM reform is a big deal. And I want pharmacists and physicians to lead medication management and not a bunch of um, not a bunch of uh, uh, pencil pushing um, organizations or administration ex organizations sucking up profit, and then leaving our decisions of our physicians and pharmacists on the wayside, as well as the needs of our patients. So take a look. This article came out um, just on the twenty sixth of this week in pharmacy, and it's from Bloomberg Law, and it's titled "Senate Targets Pharmacy." middlemen amid drug price deal and how this is going to continue to help us combat um, the, the three biggest PBMs. I want to just give a shout out to Pharmacy Times. An article came out on the 26th of this week, this week in pharmacy, saying expanding tech check will move pharmacy into the future. All right. With the expansion roles of pharmacists, which is happening at an accelerated rate, we know that some of those services and some of those um, those jobs and some of the things that are happening are going to be backfilled by pharmacy technicians. Interestingly enough, uh, Brady, my brother, my producer of Pharmacy Podcast Network, will be at the uh, PPS, the Profit Summit Live in Dallas next weekend, August 4th, talking with um, a bunch of pharmacy owners. But there's going to be a technician track at that event that talks about how pharmacy technicians are leading the way. And they're going to be helping to lead the way in many different follow-ups with patients and programs that impact your community. So if you want your pharmacy technicians to be razor sharp and be prepared for the future of pharmacy, um, get involved with Profit Summit Live 2023 by Diversify RX or reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and we'll get you plugged into people like Mike Johnston. He's the guy, uh, go Mike, um, with the MPTA. He's going to actually be there. We can't wait to interview him, so be on the lookout. But once again, today um, is an important day. We're going to be uh, getting on to our uh, first interview. But first, I want to thank um, Order, Order Insight, our sponsor for the NACDS TSE 2023. Take it away. As a pharmacy professional, balancing the demands of inventory management with your organization's business goals can feel almost impossible. Enter Order Insight, an expert system for U.S. pharmacies that delivers predictability in an ever-changing world. 
Spend time where it counts. Control what matters. Optimize intelligently. And collaborate with confidence with a partner that prioritizes your pharmacy's interests, not your suppliers. Join the growing community of 9,000-plus trusted pharmacies using Order Insight today. Visit GetOrderInsight.com for more information. That's GetOrderInsight.com. And that's right. And this week in pharmacy, I have a really interesting um, person that I'm excited about because, you know, on this show, we constantly talk about how pharmacy, the whole profession is changing. The payment systems are going to change. The PBMs are cracking with the old school ways of, of building it. Now it's going to be more tied back to outcomes. Pharmacists are moving away from from actual dispensing. Automation is kind of taking over. Artificial intelligence is going to be increasing that. So we get excited when we get guests coming on who are doing things that really is what the future of healthcare is going to become. And it's going to become much more data-driven and being able to access and use that data. And we've talked about pharmacogenomics and nutrigenomics and um, pediatrician expansion <clears throat> with pharmacists being consultative to physicians. Now we're talking about allergy uh, testing and being able to react to it and customize the medications. Ken, I am so excited you're here. Um, I'm excited that you uh, agreed to do this interview with me. And I just want you to say hello to the listeners and share a little bit about your background and and where you went to school. Where I went to school. Well, first of all, thanks for for having me. Excited to be here. Um, I uh, I started off uh, on the on the science track. Uh, I was you know realized I was one of the only people that thought the chemistry was easy in the class, and I thought that was something I should continue to follow because uh, it was uh, a little unusual. Um, ended up wanting to go to medical school quickly. Transitioned to uh, getting my PhD. So I got my undergrad in biochemistry, and then ended up. Uh, going to the University of Michigan to get my PhD in biological chemistry. At the time, genetics was too new uh, to have its own department. So we were doing, you know, essentially uh, molecular biology and genetics within the biological uh, sciences group. Um, and then I went to Park Davis right before I got acquired by Pfizer. Um, a lot of really great drugs that were being developed there. They actually put us in Domino's Farms, which was a separate location from where the real, you know, the chemists were because we were doing molecular biology and playing with DNA, and that just seemed like a fad. So, uh, so they moved us over to a different location, did a bunch of research, and then really it occurred to me that that understanding the science was really critical to becoming a patent attorney and understanding how to file patents. So I actually took a pretty dramatic change in career and actually went to law school, uh, became a patent attorney, uh, and then practiced for a few years there, didn't really love the law firm sort of structure. So I went in-house uh, at, um, at a biotech firm. At the time, I had been doing a ton of writing for Nature, Nature Biotechnology. So a lot of, if you remember back in the day, human growth hormone and Genentech and you know insulin and erythropoietin and all of those recombinant drugs were just getting started. Everyone was suing everyone. No one had a framework for how to understand who was going to win a lawsuit, why they should win the lawsuit, et cetera. So it really was a great time for me. And I, I went in-house as director of intellectual property. And I joke that, you know, through a series of unfortunate events, I ended up becoming CEO of the company. 
Um, but I've learned a lot of the, the different steps along the way. Um, and, um, and that's how my career went from sort of the science and the law uh, into the corporate world. I like the sincerity in a very special role in your career and the background that you had in, in being somebody intricate to the world of DNA and ancestry and studying your, your roots through the, the, the adoption of technology. And you and I are both old enough to remember when there was zero internet, right? We didn't have access to internet. I, my first video game system was the, the Pong Atari, you know, that was the, that was the game to have. I remember, I, have. I remember it well, I remember it well. <laughs> so to hear you having ancestry stories to tell yourself as a uh, child of, uh, of two immigrant parents, and then you begin working for ancestry, which is huge. I mean, everybody knows that name. Um, that's special. And I want you to share that story with our listeners because I read your little bit of your bio and it meant something to me because I'm like, this guy is, you're sincere from the start because you have a story to tell that kind of ties into that. So share that with our listeners. Sure. So, so after I left uh, the, the first company I worked, uh, worked at, which was uh, doing gene therapy, uh, both for hemophilia and Parkinson's, and both of those are approved in Europe and going to be approved in the U.S., I took a step back and, and really saw the revolution that you talked about uh, really around data. And I realized that, that a lot of data uh, was going to start flowing from the genetics. And, and primarily, we've all seen the graph where the cost of sequencing DNA just continued to plummet. And it was getting to a point where it was intersecting with a price point that made it sense for consumers. And literally, you know, my my family had moved to, to Park City. My daughter was a ski racer. And my next door neighbor was the CEO of Ancestry.com. And through, you know, literally a few beers in the background over the summer, we said, what do you think about DNA for Ancestry? And I said, well, technically speaking, the only reason you have an ancestor is because they passed down DNA. Right. So in some form or another, that's going to be an important that's piece of business. And, uh, and so anyway... Um, Consulted for a little while, we thought about buying our way into the business. And this is where there was an important intersection for me in my life. I'm a New Yorker, born in Manhattan. So I go around the world criticizing how everything gets done because I feel like I could do it better, right? And so it was the first time in my life that I was like, okay, wait a minute, you always criticize. Now let's see if you can actually do something better, right? Like put, put your money where your mouth is. And uh, I looked at the category and I thought, everyone is launching a product for the early adopters, the people that know a little bit more about DNA. Right. And Ancestry was too large. And I wanted to do something that hit the mainstream, right? We wanted to go large. So really what we ended up doing is changing the way uh, the science was done and how it was delivered. So the first thing we did, believe it or not, talk about you know us being old and remembering things, <laughs> only, women, only men could take the DNA test because we were only testing the Y chromosome of the male. So if a woman wanted to understand something about the family, we'd have a father or brother take the test. And I'm like, listen, women have DNA as well. Let's uh, let's actually change the test. So it's a more a more broad look at the genome, not just the Y chromosome and, and, and analyze it that way. So that was one of the major changes that we did. The other thing that we did is people, right? I'm, I'm very consumer centric, right? I'm always like, as a consumer, what do I want, right? And what would I want out of this product? And 
people really wanted to understand, especially in the United States, like, God, you know, do I have, am I Irish? Am I German? Am I? So at the time, the only thing you could tell someone is that they were either Asian, European, or African. And my joke, a little bit tongue in cheek was, look, that's what a mirror does for the most part. So if we want to sell someone a genetic test, we need to do better than that, right? And so we set out to break Europe into subcontinental pieces to try to give people that kind of specificity, which is what they wanted. At the time, everyone thought it was going to be incredibly difficult and couldn't be done. Uh, but because we were ancestry and had a lot of data, like any statistical problem, right? The more data you have, your signal to noise ratio starts getting better and better. And initially, I'll be very honest, the, the test was not very good. When I when I started, as I said, you can only tell someone what continent they were primarily from. When I left Ancestry, we could break Ireland into 99 regions that we could tell you with 99% confidence where you came from. Like it got wow. to the point where it was so specific that people would be like, okay, I've had enough. Like, a, you know, you don't have to tell me the street address. I'm, I got it. It's a small <laughs> town in, in Ireland, right? So so it got to that, it got to that point. The other, the last point I'll make real quickly, because I think it's important as we continue to, to progress, is giving them what they wanted from a science perspective, but people need to digest the information, okay? And this is what gets lost a lot in science, right? Is we, we're straight at the clinical, at the medical, at the science, right? But we forget that the consumer on the other side of that equation doesn't really think that way, doesn't know how to understand that. So when I took a test, right, as I was joining Ancestry, they told me, hey, you're a J2 haplotype. And I'm like, I have a PhD. I don't even know what that means, right? Like, I know what a haplotype means, but I don't know what a J2 means. So let, let me tell you what I do. I go to Google. Google sends me to Wikipedia. I'm still too lazy to read all the text. So I <laughs> scroll until I find a picture. I click on the picture and I go, oh yeah, that's where my dad's from, right? And so I'm like, so how about we just take the map and put it in the in the test or in the in the product? And it was little things like that that really transformed it because now you could take super complex science but delivered in a way that consumers could relate to it. They could yeah. look at a beautiful map and go, oh, that's easy. Or a pie chart and go, this is where my DNA came from all over the world and when. So that was really the the, the big breakthrough there. And then, and look, it exploded, right? Um, it, it grew uh, up to like 10 million tests a year is what we were selling in our peak. Jeez, that's incredible. That's a success story. I appreciate you sharing that. I I wanted to throw a curveball at you. We we didn't preface this, so this is definitely a curveball. So I'm fascinated by pharmacogenomics and how we now have the tech to pull out what someone is going to be able to metabolize faster than someone else. And like you said, the more data they start collecting, they're going to be able to start becoming much more specific. So I think of like disease states like pain medication or psychotropics, even especially psychotropics. Good, goodness, we could talk, we could have a whole other podcast on this. But, you know, the, the psychiatrist and physician teams in guessing kind of what they believe might fit best from a giving them whatever, Zyprexa or whatever. Now we can do a test that's come down when I started, makes me feel old. This test was $2,800. It was expensive. Nobody was doing it because it's just too expensive. Now that test is, I want to say it's between like two and $400, a full panel, being able to get everything done that you need. And now a pharmacist gets to say, hey, you shouldn't be on 
this medication. We, we, I should, we should be suggesting get the physician to tie in, change to this medication based on their expertise. And they nerd out just like you guys, you do, and you get into that data. So imagine now combining what you're doing today with ancestry type data resource for disease state management and predictive modeling and all that. And then pharmacogenomics. So what have you, what have you brought along with you into, into your new venture that you have to describe to our, um, our listeners, why I'm so excited and, and why this is kind of involving the compounding world too. Yeah. So look, you, you kind of struck an earlier with the, with the whole pharmacogenomics, maybe that's a whole nother podcast, but that was something I really wanted to do at Ancestry. And I couldn't agree with more, could agree more with everything that you mentioned, but, um, but look, what Ancestry really taught me was, um, and, and let me really explore is this idea of, again, taking complex science and in, in science and delivering it in a way that can be consumed by the average person, right. In a good way. So it's safe, it's credible, it's good science, right. We tend to have Good science is a crappy consumer experience, right? And good consumer experience usually is like snake oil, right? So how do we actually make them both together? And so when I left the ancestry after you know ten years, um, really looked at the allergy care market and realized that that whole sphere was just really broken, right? And for me to move into anything new, I needed it to be big and meaningful. And look, it's my personality again. I'm a New Yorker. I don't shy away from doing really hard things. And I feel like those are the ones that are worth it. And But when we looked at allergy care, we realized that there really wasn't an advocate for the consumer out there, right? You have the pharma, you know, is making a lot of antihistamines and other, you know, steroids that are, that are great. Uh, physicians are doing their best. There's only 3,400 allergists in the entire country, right? So it's a here, here's a problem that's exploding. Uh, and yet you only have 34 specialists uh, in the country. We needed... Someone needed to come in and fill that gap. So our, our mission is really to overhaul the entire allergy care market. So I want to make sure that that's clear. And what we wanted to do first is in Europe, a lot of the allergy care is done through taking sublingual therapy, which is equivalent to what we all are familiar and call allergy shots, right? So in the U.S., everyone's like, oh, allergy shots. Well, not surprisingly to anyone, uh, 90% of the people who are offered allergy shots are either self-aware enough upfront to realize they're never going to complete them or start them and then quit, right? So it's a very difficult uh, process. Again, in Europe, they're doing it sublingually. So what we really started the first product was to say, why don't we bring that to the market uh, in the U.S.? And so today what you do is you have allergy, um, you have allergies, you come on the site uh, and you can take an allergy test or if you want upload a test from your allergist, right? We don't really care how we consume that. The point is we want to reliably understand what you're allergic to. Is it ragweed? Is it cats? Is it dogs? Is it oak? Whatever. Once we get a reliable read on what you're allergic to, then we create, and, and a physician orders that, by the way, then we create a, a, a customized prescription for you. And so that's where the pharmacy, you know, we have our pharmacy and our pharmacist then takes that information and together with the physician, create a compounded uh, uh, formulation just for you. And you take uh, a drop underneath your tongue every day. And over time, what ends up happening is that that thing that you're allergic to, which an allergy is basically an overreaction to something that you should see as harmless, yeah. right? What happens is we desensitize you over time. And over a period of two, three years, you literally become 
you know, desensitize to that and you have, uh, you don't have allergies any longer. So that's the initial product. Um, the second thing we're doing is we're actually opening our first allergy clinic. So we actually have a brick and mortar as it called, so-called, and, uh, that's in New York city opens next month. And that'll be, you know, basically allergists and they're doing what allergists normally do, but we've really transformed that experience. So you can book online. It's going to be a beautiful experience when you come in, you're not going to have, no one's going to hand you a clipboard. Uh, like it's going to be something that the way you would expect in 2023 to go to a physician. Well, I love it. I love the idea. I, I almost, I can't help, but I, to, to think how this integrates into other things. But when I think of the distribution of the technology and the services, I immediately think of community pharmacies out there, independently owned community pharmacies who could learn about you. And then you become their allergy specialist extension into their communities. And that, that in lies allows you to do the the work of the whole allergy side of it and diag you know almost like a diagnosis and but that interconnection with now telemedicine and the way the EHRs have expanded and the data that it's looking for it really could help to bring things full circle and being able to react faster but then also involving that community feeling of trust that the that the patient has with their uh, pharmacists that they see that pharmacist nine times more than they see their physician. And if, if that pharmacist could look them in the eye and say, Hey, Frank, I know you deal with allergies every season. Guess what? I have a new uh, outsourced organization called Nectar. Look them up, you know, nectarlifesciences.com and we're going to get you tested and they're going to, we're going to take care. I mean, that's, I don't know if you've thought of that yet, but that, that would be my business model if I was your business development uh, director. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because the third, the third sort of you know leg on the stool is one you know obviously virtual care to having physical clinics. But we recognize that we're not going to have clinics all over the world or the country even, uh, and we need to partner with physicians. We need to partner you know allergists, you know PCPs, potentially pediatricians, right, who see the people that are suffering every day. Yeah. Um, and and again, one of the other products that we'll be launching. Um, you know, soon is imagine, you know, on average, look, we've done a, over 80,000 people have taken a survey. Um, we've asked them what medications they take, how often do they take it, et cetera. On average, we have like 70% of the people that are taking three plus different antihistamines and steroids. And one of the other things that the pharmacist can play a big role, which we'll be doing is we can actually formulate and compound a, a nasal spray, for example, that is specific to the symptoms that that individual is experiencing, right? Yeah, Where cool. right now you're taking a full Zyrtec and it's doing what Zyrtec does or the Flonase, et cetera. But imagine if you could take, you know, part of this, part of that and compound it in a way that optimizes your symptoms. And by the way, physicians do this now. Um, it's extremely expensive and they don't have the partnerships with the pharmacist in the way that we can get it. So we can really take something that Patients love, right? That the pharmacists already do, yeah. But they haven't. Nothing's been connected yet where exactly. this can really be done at scale, right? And I'm we're talking about comorbidity. We're talking about other tie-ins that some of our diabetics or hypertension or fertility or I don't care, fill in the blank of what the condition could be. There's other things involved, and I think the reaction by the pharmacist being involved is is much faster in this process 
and then continue to, to give the data back to um, the teams that need it. And in, in your case, you know, using data of what this is going to what this is going to do for the customization for the patient. And you know, you've seen what you saw what happened with Ancestry, and you saw you know in the ten year span the change. Imagine Nectar in ten years. You know how much how much uh, experience and data that you'll have to be able to be tied into this. So this is exciting. I want to know from your perspective, if you are a rare disease specialist, um, pharmacist that might focus on something specific, you're an oncology pharmacist, you're a pediatric pharmacist, you're, I mean, we could break down almost any condition. Where do you see Nectar in what segment really seeing an expansion of your services and like the top three per se with regards to conditions and and kind of the ears that are listening which one should peak their ears uh with more interest than others so you know we're we really are focused on allergy care so i would say you know we've talked about environmental allergies that's where we've started um there is about 120 million people that suffer allergies of which call it half of that is environmental but there are much other, you know, other conditions that we, they're an allergy that sometimes we don't think of as, as an allergy, right? But, you know, for example, asthma, 60% of asthma is something called allergic asthma, meaning their main trigger is an environmental, uh, 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 you know, pollen or, or some other antigen. Uh, the other one is food, right? Like food allergies are exploding, right? The, you know, if you look at FAIR, uh, they say that every three minutes someone goes to the emergency room because of a food allergy. So, we will be focusing on food uh, as well. So that's something that we're going to be uh, really focused on. So I would say, look, environmental, we think asthma, we think food, but other things like eczema and other things like that are, are really important. And we've also even looked at integrating other specialties into the practice because, like, as you said, things like you know anxiety, migraines, there's other links that allergy have, you know, allergy have with other conditions that we also want to make sure that the patient gets that holistic care that they deserve. The sensitivity around behavioral health, which once again, just like internet, uh, you and I didn't talk about behavioral health when we were in sixth grade or when we were in third grade or, you know, even probably 12th grade for that matter. I don't really even I think I even heard about really behavioral health until I was probably in my mid thirties where I was really starting to focus on it. But now we're seeing how a huge segment of healthcare has always been kind of ignored. And if you did start talking behavioral health, you went from zero to a hundred, you went from everything's fine to you're a nut and you need a psychiatrist or something. So today there's so much stigma that's been released from it. And, and now we're understanding that mental health is like, this is why I'm feeling anxiety. This is why, you know, I am feeling a little bit depressed, like being able to deal with that now is so much more relieving to even me personally. And I know my family, um, you know, we all have these dysfunctional families out there. So I always think of <laughs> it's, it's funny that we all what we all go through as humans, we're all experiencing that. So allergies cause an immense amount of anxiety and people knowing that a season is coming. Okay. Um, my uncle terribly terrible allergies in the springtime and, and beginning of summer and then right around in western pennsylvania you get into july august this it's might be actually a different type of allergy but um the pollen and everything his stress during that time was tenfold 
of where it was without that and without that pressure of everything else that we're going through. So take us through some of your beliefs because of the science. I see your website, by the way, great science can be delivered without compromising consumer experience. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the experience of people's lives and how this kind of will have an impact of that. Yeah, look, I can tell you my own personal story. I, when I was in the, you know, um, East coast, I got tested for allergies because they were really horrible. Uh, and I kind of joke a little bit about this, but it's, it's true. They tested me for a lot of things and I was pretty negative, but when they did the little skin prick, if anyone's familiar is when they prick you with a little bit of the thing that you might be allergic to. And they put dust mites. I had like a dinner plate on my black back. It was like, okay, you're definitely allergic to dust mites. And so it's been relieved a little as I've moved out West, but I remember being in the lab working with radiation, which no one works with radiation anymore. But again, we keep referring how old we are uh, working with radiation uh, trying to play with DNA and, and I am literally just sneezing nasal drip. Like I, I would get to the point where I'd have to stop whatever I was doing, go take some antihistamines, lay down in an air conditioned room to try to get myself to a point where I could control the allergies enough to go back into the lab. So I, I know firsthand, right. The, the, the frustration, the stress, the anxiety that that causes, cause I could never really control, you know, when it was turned on and off. Other things we're hearing a lot are just, look, you can't enjoy the outdoors, right? Like it, it really becomes a problem. Athletes, I hear this all the time from athletes. I think one of the PGA winners said that he almost lost because of his allergies, right? Like imagine if you're around grass, like a golfer, right? Or something like that. It really becomes an issue. I had dinner with a friend the other day that, you know, said, oh, my, I played baseball and like, I, you know, I couldn't be on the baseball field. So th this is a real, this is a real problem. And people are like medicating themselves so much just to try to control them and and they need a a better way to do it and this is one of the few things frankly in science where look nothing's 100 percent, but the truth is you can desensitize yourself to the point where you can actually rid yourself if not completely mostly of this uh, of this condition which you know again we can't say that about many conditions right that's one of the few that you can actually treat true it's very true so i want to understand kind of the um that holistic tie-in approach so we see a surge of of holistic and integrative pharmacists coming out of the consulting space and what they're doing is they're going into um develop these relationships between i don't know chambers or commerce or something but they're meeting physicians telling their story and they're saying hey i'm a specialist in celiac disease or i'm a specialist in and it's kind of cool i like seeing the the delivery so i think of i think of the world and the allergy space of how this impacts people um and the holistic side of this uh to be able to kind of follow up and and be now be consultative so now we're able to say hey um if you took turmeric or something, or you combine this with a with a statin or a mixture of of medications, because you're really starting to talk about compounding as well. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the opportunities at hand that isn't necessarily nectar uh, related, but really it's an opportunity for a compounding pharmacist. It's an opportunity for pharmacists to take the lead in helping people to manage their allergies. Well, look, I think the compound. Uh, combined pharmacists are play an absolute integral role here, right? And, and even from the very beginning of allergies, you know, the first time someone did immunotherapy, as we call it, uh, was over 100 years ago, right? And even then, 
it was recognized that it had to be specific. If you're allergic to ragweed, it's the ragweed that we need to slowly dose you up. And what I really like about the compound pharmacy, a lot of this is done at a doctor's office right now. Okay, so a pharmacist, believe it or not, isn't the one that's compounding the shots that people take. Um, what I like is a pharmacist, look, a pharmacist is trained, right? And, and they have ways of doing things and, and the quality control that, quite frankly, is missing in other parts of medicine. It doesn't make it bad. It's just that this is what they're trained, right? And so I really think that you're going to see in allergies that this is going to be the wave of the future, whether it's sublingual immunotherapy, whether it's, you know, I'd love to see subcutaneous uh, mixing of drugs that are actually going to be injected in someone be done by a pharmacist in a real sterile environment where I could be confident that what we're getting and injecting into people has been done by a professional who's been trained in that. Um, we don't do that today because of reimbursement, right? This is where reimbursement gets a little tricky, right? The reimbursement codes require certain mixing, but not by the pharmacist, right? I don't have to tell you, right? Healthcare's messy, yeah. reimbursement's messy. And and some of that is you know, our barriers that I think we should remove. But at the end of the day, for allergies, it's always been a personalized, um, it's always been personalized care. You know, not everyone's going to take the cat or dogs or, you know, you said in the spring. Well, other people, and then you said something about July and August. Well, that's maybe ragweed or could be trees, right? It's unique. So I think the particularly for compound pharmacists, whether it's sublingual immunotherapy, whether it's subcutaneous, whether it's compounding nasal sprays, whether it's compound eczema creams, the idea of like looking at the, the, the individual and compounding something that makes sense for them is, is, is really the wave of the future, which is tightly tied closely to pharmacogenomics. It's the same exact thing. Why would you give someone a drug for which they don't have the, uh, the, the cytochrome to metabolize yep. that, that drug? It just makes no sense, right? So I think all of it's moving in that direction. The pharmacogenomics is one of it, but I think allergy will probably, in, in some ways, sadly, because I think we should have done pharmacogenomics already, going uh, to lead the way in terms of uh, personalized medications. And this is a just a dumb non-pharmacist question. I am not a pharmacist, not a physician, and so I'm 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 actually the consumer. I'm I'm an intelligent consumer that can conduct an interview with a physician or pharmacist, but really do it with the consumer's awe in some ways, because we're still, it's still sometimes mysterious. And one of the things that you said that I caught that I kind of wanted to follow up on was, so physicians have to prescribe this, just like in pharmacogenomics, you know, a physician has to write a test and there's ways to get around it where, you, where a pharmacist is more saying to them, please run this test and then they can do it that way. But let's talk about the age, like, is there an age requirement or can we dig into pediatric allergies that's actually become an issue um, with children, knowing if your child is allergic to peanuts or low, you know, um, aphala I mean, there's so many things that could come from the stress of, of parenting and kids. I have four daughters, so I, I get it. And so talk to me about the age, like, is there a focus in pediatrics, for example, within within your strategy and, and what you're building out? So what's interesting is there's something called the allergic march. And, and what that means is um, that people start and progress through different types of allergies. So frequently you see in babies, you can see eczema and skin yes. conditions can be more prominent. Um, and then you can see that progress uh, into food, in environmental, and then ultimately asthma. Now, obviously, everyone doesn't progress 
Exactly. But there is this sort of progression that occurs. I think with respect to environmental allergies, 30% of the population out there uh, is, is, uh, is, you know, children. Um, with food, we see it even more prominent. It skews more towards uh, children. Um, and today, you know, we look, it is a terrifying thing. My daughter, fortunately, did not have an allergy. But you're sending your child to kindergarten or school, hoping that the child next to them either didn't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or washed their hands really well. Yeah. And then trusting that the EpiPen is close by and someone knows how to use it. Like, I'm, I'm grateful I didn't have to go through that stress, but the, the willingness of parents to try to relieve that stress is a big one. And I think this is something that we really want to do and want to do well. And I think we can. And I think the technology is evolving rapidly. Pharmacists are going to play an exact, the exact same role that they're playing today with environmental. They'll be playing in food. But I think we can really alleviate it. And the, and the data, just to give you a little bit of sense, the data is really pretty convincing that most people, I would say most children in some of these trials that have been done, 80%, let's say, um, are bite proof. And and that's really to that really is the goal. Meaning you took a bite of something when you went to a restaurant, you said I'm allergic to peanuts, don't add peanuts. They do anyway. You take a bite and you're like, this contained peanuts, but you at least now can stop. You're not going to go into anaphylaxis, right? Some actually go close to a field cure and, and there's always some percent that don't get this, but that's really the goal there, right? And to remove that level of stress from the child and the parent. So at a minimum, if there's been a mistake made, it's not, doesn't lead to sort of these, you know, the consequences that you see going to the emergency room, the EpiPen, and, and all the scary things that happen in between before the EpiPen kicks in. And, you know, I mean, you're talking about a child that can't breathe and their throat's constricting. I mean, that's terrifying. Ken, do, do people have allergies that change throughout our lives and you're affected by it? you know, in your thirties or your sixties or whatever, as a child and not as I eczema, for example, my daughters had eczema and they grew out of it. They, I guess, grew out of it, but can you take a test today or do you foresee the ability for us to take a test today that will kind of give us relevance to what we could become allergic to as flags as like, and how early could you do that before it would be meaningful? So I'll preface this by saying I'm not an allergist or an immunologist. Um, what what we what we say is when you get tested, what we test you for, if it's a skin prick test, is just looking for an immunological response to the antigen that we add to your skin. Uh, if it's a blood test, which is what we primarily do uh, at Nectar, is we're looking for IgE antibodies in the blood. Uh, and so my understanding from speaking to the allergist is that um, for the most part, right, those aren't going to go away. Um, and so if you get tested today, uh, unless you've moved and potentially introduced another allergen, um, you should stay consistent. However, I have heard from our allergist and our chief medical officer that um, that there are people that acquire a an allergy later in life, shellfish and things like that. So uh, it, it's a complex immunological uh, condition the march that you said your daughters had eczema and they grew out of it i don't know if they have environmental allergies or food allergies uh, hopefully they don't but frequently that's the progression uh, of the disease but i think most people who are allergic to something will remain allergic to that but there are exceptions as anything in medicine right where you can acquire something or potentially be relieved of something um, on your own so we've had a 
horrible experience in our world and our nation with the pandemic and how pharmacists were there to step up for testing. And then of course, um, vaccines and really giving out, um, so many of the, of the shots that it helped us to kind of correct the ship with the whole thing. So I think of, um, I think of the ability, like you were saying, to use more of the data from a predictive perspective and staying ahead of things. Um, what, you know, you've seen the progression of ancestry and DNA and how microscopic you were able to really drill down into it. And then we're talking about pharmacogenomics. That's going to continue to refine. We actually have a show, PGX for Pharmacists, that's just about pharmacogenomics. We have two wonderful, um, Dr. Becky um, and and Dr. Um, Banaz. They're just great. They're just crazy nerdy, and they get into PGX and how it's going to kind of continue to to move forward. Now I'm thinking of you're getting my mind thinking about testing for allergies, and imagine being able to test people to assure that they're reacting to the vaccine the way that it was intended for you to react to it and be able to filter out the small percentage of people that are having bad reactions to specific vaccines, whether it's smallpox or whether it's, you know, whatever, whatever were vaccine. I, when I, when I grew up, I think I got maybe nine, seven or nine booster shots. They called it vaccines today. I think kids are over 30. I mean, so of those 30, how many of those kids that are getting that specific vaccine have an allergic reaction to it? And 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 then we could start clearing out the hyperboil around, you know, crazy vaccine people and are you a vaxxer? Aren't you a vaxxer? And I keep right. every time I hear those arguments, I'm like, come on, it's science is science. It it is what it is. It's it's we have to interpret it. We get smarter as we have more data and stuff. But what's your thought around the future of what you are doing to be able to test for something like something more microscopic and molecular um, than than where you're at today? Yeah, it's a great. The last comment you made made me made me remember when my daughter was really young. We'd have little play dates, you know, with other friends when it was raining, and and I'd always give them a little let's isolate DNA, let's do, and at the end, I had to give him a couple questions just for fun. My last question was always, is this magic or science, right? And it, and it's science. And, you know, it sounds like magic. Sometimes it feels weird, but there's an explanation out there and we just don't understand it, right? And I think, look, we took ancestry and it's genealogy and it's fun, but it, there's a real lesson in there, right? And the real lesson is that when you're data-driven and you collect enough data like ancestry was able to collect, you can do magic, what really feels like magic, but it's science. The, the largest clinical studies have been done in allergies are relatively small. From a statistical significance, like literally a drop in the bucket. So as I mentioned earlier, we've already got 80,000 plus people that have taken our quiz, right? We really want to, we want to collect that data and we want to start understanding exactly what you're saying. Like there are some people that potentially have higher antibody levels, but don't have any allergies, or people have small antibody levels and have a lot of energy. Like we really know almost nothing about this, right? So the idea that we're end to end, we're gonna test you. By the way, you take a clinical intake question when you take the test, which asks you the same questions an allergist would ask you if they were sitting in front of you, right? So we have all that clinical history. We now have the diagnostic. We give you a, a, a personalized um, 
uh, prescription for the drops. And then we follow up with you, right? This is the internet, right? So it's beautiful, right? Like you don't may not go to the doctor, right? Later, but we can ask you questions. How are you doing? Did you get an, you know, any itchy throat? You know, we're constantly monitoring. And it's the ability to bring those together in a way that we can say, hey, look what we found, right? People who answered the question this way and had the blood test results that were like this actually responded this way. And that's where the, that's where, again, the magic happens, right? That's when you start to understand things in a way much deeper than we do today. And, and look, medicine, I think, is doing the best it can, but it's not very data-driven in many areas, right? Especially, you know, when you just go to the doctor. And again, not just the pharmacist. I, I love that the pharmacist would be sending a physician a note saying, hey, would you like to test them for pharmacogenomics to see what their profile looks like before we take this drug? I love that, right? Because a lot of physicians just weren't trained, right? And so they're, they're practicing medicine the way they've always practiced it. But the, but the world is evolving so quickly that we've just got to be more data-driven. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm excited about this. I think this will be one of many. I'd like to have you back talking about specifics. Let's drill down into... We were talking about the rare disease state world. We were talking about geriatrics. We're talking about pediatrics. I think there is more to come from Nectar and your team and what you're doing. I think this is exciting. I want pharmacists to reach out to you that have um, ideas around partnerships or whatever um, you know, you're doing and, and where you're at and, and getting ready to go full blast. I know that that's always, oh, geez, like, uh, Babson Diagnostics, for example, the blood testing group that's going to embed blood testing abilities in community pharmacies, they're they're still waiting for that final FDA, you know, release and check and the stress that's a that's around to getting this technologies out here. But that's why we want people like you on this week in pharmacy because we want you to really preface what can come and what can come from collaborations between. Um, someone who is a an allergy specialist, a pharmacist, a physician, uh, someone who really understands that can be much more proactive instead of reactive. Right. Well, I, look, I, I think that's great. I would say anyone listening, uh, if you go to mynectar.com is sort of the, the consumer facing site. Uh, Nectarlifesciences.com is the more sort of corporate site. Go to both. Uh, we do have a provider page on, on the mynectar.com. Uh, we're actively reaching out and educating the community on what we're doing and are looking for people who want to partner with us long-term. We're not going to do this alone. We can't do this without the help of pharmacists and physicians if we really want to get our product out there and, and help people, you know, get rid of their allergies or improve their allergies. So I uh, invite everyone to go to mynectar.com, go to the provider page, read on it. Um, leave us your email and then we're going to, we're going to start reaching out uh, and partnering with, with everyone. Excellent. Mynectar.com. We'll remember that. Uh, It'll be part of our show notes as well. Ken, this has been um, special for us. I appreciate you making this time, but like I said, make sure we schedule a follow-up to to dig into other, um, other specifics, the more specific, the better. Sounds great. Anyone wants to see the clinic, I think starting next month, it'll be a block away from uh, from Union Square. So go visit that as well. Maybe we can have you over there. Yes. I'll come up. I think uh, one of our partners, Finn Partners, has offices in Manhattan. So I'll come up and yeah. see you. All that right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ken. 
interview with Ken. Thank you so much to Nectar Life Sciences for being part of This Week in Pharmacy. It's important to understand what possibilities and technologies are coming out for consultant pharmacists who are actually going to become a big part of the workforce of our 305,000 active pharmacists throughout the United States. Don't get me started. I'm telling you, we're transforming. There's going to be positions that there's going to be pharmacists out there who were in retail pharmacy who are going to have reputations in their community who are going to step out and be able to do point of care testing, allergy testing, pharmacogenomics testing, specific to partnerships within their um, within their community through uh, either collaborative agreements with physicians or when provider status comes through. I'm excited. Hey, our next interview is with Pharma the Movie, which is coming out. And this is Pharma is based on an incredible story of Dr. Francis. She's known as Frankie Kelsey and her fight to keep the dangerous drug from being approved uh, for the U.S. markets. A risk She was risking her career uh, and her family, and she waged war against Big Pharma back in the 60s, resisting intense pressure and threats from inside the uh, FDA to expose the biggest uh, unmentioned drug trial in U.S. history. You have to listen to this interview. This is so, so amazing and so interesting. Before that, we want to talk about a product that we at the Pharmacy Podcast Network, a shout out to Tyler, uh, Claire, who takes care of our graphics and support of our patients, as well as Rachel Medlock, who is our hammer. We call her here because she keeps things going. She's our operations director. And uh, Brady wasn't able to take advantage of this, but we all took Magic Mind this week. And I'll tell you what, Magic Mind, not snake oil. This stuff works. This got me going. It gave me energy. I'd say I'm a pretty hyperactive person as it is. Uh, I know all you know this, but I'd say I'd get about 20% more energy feeling of a boost. Um, so research this. You guys are a bunch of pharmacist nerds. You know Better than me, research Magic Mind. Go to Google, research Magic Mind. Hey, I'm going to bring on our next interview, but I want to give a shout out to our listeners. I want to give a shout out to Naso Cleanse for helping us at the NACDS. They're going to be a sponsor, Naso Cleanse. Uh, this is going to be coming um, flu season coming up and cold season coming up. Naso Cleanse, wait till you hear about this product. You'll see us at NACDS with Naso Cleanse. But let's get to Pharma the movie. I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Hey, and on this week in pharmacy, um, which is exciting because our second portion of what we're going to be talking about, I don't know if anybody has heard about this movie that's coming out. Um, if everybody remembers when Dan Schneider did The Pharmacist from Netflix, I was so excited to see that there was uh, developers, movie makers, and script writers that could take an actual event and create it where it was, well, this was a documentary, but it was entertaining to watch, very informative, and brought to light the opioid use disorder issue that the nation was going through from a pharmacist perspective. And Dan, of course, he lost his son, um, and it was a horrible portion of the story but the light and the information and the education that's come out of that has been wonderful i think that this next guest who i'm so excited to introduce to our listeners and if you're watching us on youtube or linkedin live um, welcome to this week in pharmacy my name is todd yuri 
founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. But let's talk about pharma, which is based on the true story of Dr. Francis Kelsey. And I have with me today the writer, Dory Zavala, here with me. Dory, we are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, too. I have spent years working on this project, and it is just, uh, you know, a, a project close to my heart. So I'm so excited to talk to you guys about it. All right. So right out of the gate, um, when's this coming out? When it, when are we going to be able to watch this movie? We actually are still in the funding part of it. Um, it, it movies, especially independent movies, um, usually have a phase where, you know, we're trying to get investors and different funding on it. And so we are right now looking at, we're hoping to go into production mm -hmm. later this year uh, with a premiere next year, uh, spring 2024 is what we're hoping for right now. Excellent. Yeah, if you if you Google this and go to the website, if you're listening, you can go to pharmathemovie.com. Once again, that's pharma themovie.com. I read about kind of the the biopsy per se of it. It um it says it admits the political charged atmosphere of the 1960s, Washington, DC, two female doctors unveil a web of corruption and deceit that puts profits over people's lives, and it's inspired by true events. Um, Dory, things happen in cycles, right? It's just strange in humanism. And we have to balance the difference between evil and good. And evil comes from not necessarily people setting out to do those evil things. I think sometimes it manifests or it domino effects in in the view of uh, of what profits could could take place. And it overrides in many uh, cases uh, healthcare. I think that this parallels what's happening in our uh, pharmacy care industry right now with what is known as pharmacy benefit manager reform, which is trying to get our PBMs, the three biggest ones, to start um, finally go back to the meaning, which was, hey, let's uh, let doctors and pharmacists care for our patients without involving this big insurance company that controls everything and then changes the care, which it doesn't do anything as it was supposed to do from the beginning. And when I think of the pharmaceutical market, and this is my life, I've worked in this, this uh, pharmaceutical marketplace and pharmacy for 20 years, and I believe in it, but I believe in the balance. And I think of, imagine a woman, an intelligent, educated woman in the 1960s and what she had to go through in order to pull the wool back and pull the the farce and the and, and for lack of a of finding a word that the evil of the pharmaceutical industry to to shout at the rooftops of hey this is happening and how much uh, she, what she probably went through I'm I'm so excited about this movie but I want you to share with our listeners what is pharma the movie about and 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 what are you most excited about about it yeah, it's, it's about a lot of what you're talking about there. Um, I ran across the story of Dr. Frances Kelsey, and anybody can Google her, and she has a huge Wikipedia page and find out how important she was to the development of the pharmaceutical industry today. Uh, she helped develop the clinical trial process that's used as the gold standard throughout the world. Um, I ran across a story about her in 2017, and I just thought, how have we never heard about this doctor? Um, she, you know, as you mentioned, she was in the 1960s. She just started working at the FDA. 
she was, was one of the first women doctors. She was the second woman doctor to work at the FDA re reviewing drug applications. She was uniquely qualified to review drug applications because she had a PhD in pharmacology from the University of Chicago, and she also had an MD from the University of Chicago. So she had both of these degrees. And um, one of the first drugs that came across her desk when she started in 1960 was the drug thalidomide. And thalidomide had already been approved all over the world. It was approved in, I think, 52 countries at the time that this drug application came across her desk. And reviewing it with her unique background that she had, she just felt like something was wrong with this application. It, you know, at, at the time, and this is something I think everybody needs to know, is our drug laws were different than they are now. The, the drug laws we have now were actually uh, put into place. The Kefauver-Harris amendments were put into place in 1962. So this was a very different sort of situation um, that she was operating under. And the pharmaceutical companies had a lot of influence with the FDA, uh, a lot of influence in how the drugs were being marketed, uh, who they were being given out to, and what was being approved. Uh, there was also an investigation at the time where uh, pharmaceutical companies were paying off FDA employees to write favorable articles for their drugs in um, different trade magazines. And, you know, uh, and, there, and it was like $250,000, which at the time was a lot of money. So Dr. Kelsey comes into this. And I think to your point, what was most important to her was public health. Like most important to her was what is going to keep people safe. And that's what gets lost even now today. It gets lost in all of the, you know, vying for power and money and the corruption is like what actually is going to keep people safe. And that was always what was most important in her mind. And that's really what drew me to this story was just this relentless pursuit for her. I mean, she faced so much opposition from her bosses at the FDA who were not doctors, from the pharmaceutical companies to just, just to prove it, just to prove it, just to prove it. And she just pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and said, I don't feel okay with this. I'm not going to approve it. Ultimately, the U.S. was one of the only countries that did not approve um, thalidomide. It was, it was never FDA approved. It turns out it was given out. 2.5 million pills were given out in the U.S. and they were ended up being recalled. But it was never officially approved because of Dr. Kelsey. So I know that our uh, listening audience, if you're a pharmacist, they already understand um, a little bit about this uh, backstory. But can you describe um, what the medication was intended for and then what contraindications were kind of brought up by um, by Dr. By Dr. Chelsea? Right. Well, the applications at the time, and this was before the 1962 drug law amendment. So at the time, um, safety and efficacy did not need to be proved. They only needed to prove safety. And there were uh, pharmaceutical companies did not have to report adverse side effects to the FDA as part of their drug application. Um, interestingly enough, this drug came from Germany. And because it was a foreign drug, they just sort of said, well, whatever trials happened, happened. Richardson Merrill here was trying to light was licensing the drug to market it in the US. Um, so there really weren't any human studies that were part of this drug application. It was all rat studies. And so that was one of Dr. Kelsey's concerns is she said, well, there's no indication here of how this is going to actually react in a in a human. The rat studies, they were claiming that there was no lethal dose. So this was marketed by this company as a, a sedative that was 
unlike barbiturates, it wasn't habit forming. Uh, there was no overdose risk, they claimed. They just said this is just a, a completely safe sedative. You could give it to kids. It's like, you know, it's, it's just completely fine. Well, obviously, Dr. Kelsey, having a PhD in pharmacology, knew that that was highly unlikely. Um, and she saw that the rats didn't seem to be absorbing it in the same way that humans would. It, it acted as a sedative in humans. The rats didn't seem to go to sleep. So she's like, okay, I mean, they're saying there's no lethal dose, but if it's not putting the rats to sleep, it probably has a different effect in humans. So therefore, we need more studies. That was just basically what she kept saying is we just need more proof. There's no emergency to get this out. This isn't an, an urgent life-saving drug. Uh, it was marketed as this um, alternative to barbiturates for hysterical women, especially at the time in the 1960s. That was a big deal, especially around Christmas time, which I thought was really interesting in my research. Um, so, so she was just like, we, why don't we just make sure that it's safe? And she just got so much pushback about this. Um, it, as it went along, they started marketing it to pregnant women and for morning sickness. So it was shown to, um, to help apparently with the symptoms of morning sickness. Um, so it was being marketed that way. So when that happened, Dr. Kelsey said, okay, now prove to me that it's safe for pregnant women. Um, in the 1960s, it was actually not, um, like necessarily an accepted thing that drugs would pass through the placental barrier. Um, there was like still a lot of, up, it was still kind of up in the air. Um, Dr. Kelsey had some previous experience with researching regarding malaria drugs in 1942, and she'd worked with pregnant rabbits. And so she knew from that, that drugs could pass the placental barrier. So she would, all of these things came together for this unique background that she had that made her say, you know what, I'm going to ask questions about this because something's off. In the meantime, in Europe, the, the rates of birth defects were going up um, because it was affecting the babies, but they were not tying it together. So it took several years for them to actually make these connections. On her end, it was more just something's off. The testing isn't right. They're not giving us the records that we need. Um, there's indications that the pharmaceutical companies were just hiding the results of their testing, not giving them to the FDA because they were not required to by law. Dory, you said something before we started recording this interview um, in, in the green room, and it was really interesting, and that is this movie is not political. And I love that because I don't think healthcare deserves or should be ever political because it involves the health of our of our people and of our patients in in this case a pregnant woman the 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 baby the you know the the impacts who knows what what could happen uh, in continuing to take a medication that we weren't really sure of and um i want to make a parallel comparison so this is not the first time that the fda has been I'm using my air quotes, um, bought off. Um, and I'm sure that there are uh, unfortunate situations that we don't even know about as consumers about how the FDA has been manipulated. Uh, Purdue, um, who put out Oxycontin and the whole opioid uh, issue, we know now uh, manipulated the FDA's choice in telling the FDA through so-called studies that it was a non-addictive medication now forward, uh, we forward ahead, we know that is absolutely not the case. And of course, they've been fined, which, um, you know, we could talk about the outcomes of that and what's going to happen in follow up. But I think of our justice system in court of law, where you're supposed to receive the outcome of a of a sentencing uh, derived from a jury 
of your peers, right? And I'm wondering uh, in in the next evolution of FDA in pharmaceutical, if if this panel of of people, uh, educated researchers, physicians, pharmacists, um, get together to to look at something, look at studies, and make a final determination. And I'm sure that those um, those safety precautions are put in place for the FDA to stamp something approved. But isn't you know it it's it's unfortunate this day and age of medicine we see that pharmaceutical manufacturers are balanced between a true health benefit and uh, the long-term impacts of a medication for some of our chronic diseases, including I'm thinking of the whole cancer industry, and then the word profit and the balance between that. Do we have to be profitable in order to keep a company going? Do we need the revenue? Absolutely. Research is expensive. Um, I understand. We're not naive. But where does it like this movie to me and i can't wait to see this is is another example to the consumer out there that you you are at the mercy of a system that has been designed to keep us safe now the one the number one purpose of our pharmacists we have about 300,000 of them uh through active pharmacists throughout the country the number one purpose of a pharmacist is safety and it's to keep the public safe. So what do you feel the upper mission is of pharma, uh, the movie based on the true story of Dr. Francis uh, Kelsey? What do you what do you think it has as a mission statement, per se, in moving forward? Well, it's always really important to me to demonstrate to people that even though this happened a long time ago and it's something that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about, even though it was pretty recent history um and the fact that people know about it is what is the danger of when we lose sight of what of the public health of the individual health of the person what is the danger of when there's interference with an independent judgment on that health by um by money uh, uh billionaire pharmaceutical companies that are seeking a profit or by elected officials that are not a part of the agency that are putting pressure like these are sort the things that are still coming up today where it's important for us i think as the public and in people within the industry to keep saying and going back to that okay like profits cannot be more important than keeping people safe and if there's anything in the system that's putting pressure on that that's keeping it from an independent judgment then that's a problem and that's what really was what was in my mind when i wrote this movie was sort of showing look it's still happening there. We've evolved and there's technology and there's all these different things, but it's still happening where we're losing sight of what's best for individual people. The profits can never be more important than that. Yep. I like that. So customization of treatment programs is blossoming into other opportunities for researchers, pharmacists, physicians, uh, uh, specialists, one of the most fascinating pieces or tools that have come from um, from technology is the is the term pharmacogenomics. So that is the science of does this medication work on you based on your DNA versus on me? So if you and I took the same medication, the ABC medication, or let's do a psychotropic like a Zyprexa, for example, 
your body and your DNA may react to that and absorb that medication differently than mine. And your psychiatrist slash doctor that, that prescribes something to you doesn't actually know if your if the Zyprexa is going to work on you. They they think that they know based on the so-called quote unquote research that's there, but you as an individual may uh, may, imp, may take an impact or result result. Uh, of an outcome or in in some unfortunate cases uh, a bad reaction a contraindication to the medication so pharma the movie also represents the fact that we need to move deeper into personalized medications because once again doctors that prescribe are literally uh throwing educated darts at a dartboard with sometimes a blindfold on because they're they're saying, hey, I know what this medication is intended to do, but I don't know if it's actually going to work for you because they don't know if it's going to work for you unless they've run some kind of test that could show them how you're going to react to the molecular component of this medication, of this recipe um, of what we're taking into our bodies. What do you think of the evolution of medicine and the development of of pharmaceuticals uh, and what what has pharma the movie taught you i mean i think it's amazing what i from what i understand of it i'm not in the industry i actually am an attorney i've been an attorney for many many years so <laughs> i i see it more a lot of times from that side um but you know just looking back to how things were done back in the 1960s i mean if everything was paper it was basically draw back back up drug applications were these huge phone book sized files. And we've come across all these pictures of just like phone books stacked on the desk. And these medical officers would just page by page go through all of these pages, you know, to try to figure it out. So at the time, you know, like I said, under the law, efficacy was not even required under the law until 1962. So they were running into these situations where, okay, bottled water is safe, but if you're marketing that as a cancer treatment, then that not only has the problem of taking somebody's money, but also they're not doing something else that might actually be effective in that treatment because they're counting on this other treatment um, that's not effective. So that was just, you know, them trying to get that into place, I think was important. But our drug laws haven't changed since 1962. And so much else has changed, as you're talking about, you know, like with technology and with the insurance structure and, you know, do doctors and pharmacists have the right amount of time that they need to make those individual requirements? Do you have the resources? Are they given the resources that they need to make those individual requirements? Because again, putting an individual's health as the first priority, that would happen where that's, that's not happening when you're putting profits as the first priority. Has Pharma the movie developed a curiosity from you to now move to that next project? Not not to give away any of your secrets of what, what you have <laughs> bubbling up on the back burner, but has it created a curiosity in your mind as a lawyer and someone who is pre pre prevalent and very experienced in that side of what is healthcare? Has it made you more curious to kind of start positioning other projects? Um, it has. I mean, a lot of what I do, it's it's very important to me as a writer that I am as accurate as possible. I spent a lot of time researching for Pharma, the movie. I went to Washington, D.C. I looked through the National Records Archives and Dr. Kelsey's papers, spent days just going through all of the records there. And I'm very proud to say that the movie is 
as historical accurate, historically accurate as you can make it and still keep it interesting, right? Um, but I think it's just it's just fascinating to me how many of how how things have evolved since then and how we still have so many of the same root problems, you know, even though there were the so there was this terrible tragedy, obviously, with thalidomide. Um, one thing I do want to point out, it did happen in the US. There was a the law at the time allowed um patients to be given unapproved drugs without their consent which is like one of the most egregious things that I've learned through all of this. So these pregnant women were given this medication without even knowing that it hadn't been approved by the FDA. And there were hundreds of survivors here in the U.S. Um, so we have talked to them and, and interviewed them as well as part of this. And it's just crazy to me to think like, OK, so then, you know, Congress said, OK, we have to act and we'll put these new laws into place in 1962. And then did it really fix anything? You know, uh, not really, because then it just created new problems. It's like the FDA was maybe so afraid to pass anything that, you know, now they're not passing things that they should or approving things they should. Or they're making the obstacles so high that only billion billion dollar pharmaceutical companies can even afford the process. So I think it's really interesting how there's all these issues that developed as a result of this. I'm interested in history, but also, yeah, very interested in how this has come out today and what we can do today to still to try to, you know, as, as far as we can bring awareness to it and help people to try to push the system and the industry to get back to putting public health um, as their first priority. I think of ethics and healthcare ethics, business ethics, and how ethical um oaths the oath of the pharmacist is to is to once again if you read the oath of the pharmacist it's to keep the public safe as as you and i agreed it's necessary and once again i the innovation of science the innovation of technology and how artificial intelligence is going to accelerate clinical trials to be able to uh, speed things up without losing the quality of the clinical trials all of this is fascinating but it still comes back to a human being protecting other human beings based on all of the knowledge and all of the research that's been done and doing it in a way where it doesn't come back to just one person's desk or one person's decision mm -hmm. that could be manipulated by a system that puts pressure on them from either a political perspective or threats for, of their own job or threats of their own safety. I can only imagine what Dr. Francis uh, Kelsey went through once again, as a woman of the time where women were not respected like they are today as, as researchers, as knowledgeable um, and understanding what's going on, which a bias that makes no sense whatsoever. And what she went through and what people are now fast forward, what, pe what are people going through today who are uh, similar to Dr. Uh, Kelsey and, and, and are red flagging something that gets pushed aside based on money, profit, you know, politics, whatever it may be. This is a constant um, cycle of, of what we're going through in healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. And we have a surge of pharmacists right now who are moving towards the balance of integrative medicine with um, pharmacological makeups of, of drugs. And that is exactly it. We need that balance because do I believe in the pharmaceutical markets? Absolutely. It's amazing what we've designed, especially with vaccines and, and eradicating you know diseases that were here 20, 50, 100 years ago that aren't here today. That's amazing science. But 
I'm not naive. I know that there are things happening in the pharmaceutical markets that's driven by profit alone and how many people have been stepped on or pushed aside that have a voice and it's their purpose to keep uh, the public safe that are now being beat up in some way or threatened in some way. And um, that's that's something I want to hear from you is just your feeling on the system that we're in today. And of course, that balance between integrative and in the world of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the whistleblower uh, point that you brought up is something that's really interesting. And that actually is something that we address in our movie. There was another, it, she was actually the first doctor who, to work at the FDA, first female doctor to work at the FDA, uh, Dr. Barb Moulton. She's not as well known as Dr. Kelsey, but she was one of the first whistleblowers in the U.S. And she actually testified before Congress about the corruption that she was seeing in the FDA um, there's congressional records on her. Um, and she just, we, we found some interviews interesting there where other men at the FDA were like, oh, she's so aggressive. And, you know, they were, they were just like criticizing her for being such a pain because she made her self known. And she said, you know, these, F, these, um, these pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be walking into our office and buying us lunch, <laughs> you know, yeah. because at the time, and I will say for the lunch, they had, uh, a fancy French restaurant where uh, all the FDA employees could go, at least the higher ups and the pharmaceutical companies would pick up the tap. So they were like having these martini lunches and stuff, you know, it was, it was very cozy. The relationship was very cozy. And um, so Dr. Moulton went and went to Congress and testified against them and said, this, this shouldn't be happening. And she, she brought it to the forefront. And, and I think that that's something that today there's still, from what I understand about it, there's still a lot of fear uh, within the pharmaceutical companies of a whistleblower, you know, that type coming forward and saying, hey, the people need to know what's happening here. So I think there needs to be a lot more transparency in the process, and, you know, and, and like yeah. with COVID and the vaccines and everything. It's just as much transparency as we can have so that people understand the process and what's going into it and who's making the decisions and making sure it's not, like you said, just one or two people that can be easily persuaded through whatever means, you know, but it's more a group of people who's taking care of it. Um, and, and, and absolutely. I agree with the integrative route as well, just from personal experience. Like I think that, that pharmaceuticals have amazing, um, you know, amazing benefits in a lot of cases, but you know, like we were talking about, I think beforehand is that, you know, you, you'll, they'll have, give you one, drug for something and then say, oh, that's making you nauseous. Well, here's another one for that. Oh, okay. That's making you sleepy. Well, here's another one for that. You know, whereas like, okay, maybe you just, I don't know, maybe need some more vitamin D or, you know, there's some, yep. some things like, I, I don't understand why that couldn't be more integrative of sort of a holistic approach to like, yes, let's use the pharmaceuticals when they're really needed, but let's also talk to people about general health and, and nutrition and how those things can, can add into it. So how much support, if any, have you received from, and you don't have to name names, of course, we're very respectful of that, but how has the pharmaceutical market that has learned about um, pharma, the movie, how have they received the, um, the coming of the movie per se in what you know? And has anybody ever offered any assistance in research or follow-up or, or really helping you to um, connect with the right people within the pharmaceutical marketplace. 
Um, I wouldn't say so much in the pharmaceutical industry. We have had doctors that we've spoken to who have um, helped us with the script. Like I said, it's very important to me to try to make it as accurate as possible. So they've really looked at the science parts of it, you know, just to make sure that we're reflecting everything there correctly. And we do have a consultant who is a, is an MD and has, you know, is helping us with that side of it. Um, I don't think the pharmaceutical industry, as far as I know, is as aware of it as I would like. Um, I think it would be amazing if they're more more aware of it. And and I would love to have, you know, to even just be able to talk to some experts in the area. And, um, you know, because like I said, this this is not a movie that we consider to be political at all. This is that we just want to tell the story of something that happened in the 1960s that changed the drug laws. It's the drug laws we have in effect now. And it really informs where we're at today. It tells the story of how this has all evolved and I think helps people to understand even more what's happening now in the context of it. So I think some of the changes that are taking place because of transparency, because our consumers are much more educated, even though um, I, I, I have a term called, we all know what this means. It's not my term. It's people have said, Dr. Google, people trying to diagnose themselves by going to Google and doing research. I don't think that's, necessarily good i think that you should be going to your physician and your pharmacist and our providers to really drill down into what you're experiencing if you're experiencing something however imagine the top 20 pharmaceutical companies in the world santa fe gilead mark bristol novartis bayer imagine one of them stepping out of the sheep you know doing everything that everybody else does and hiring a whistleblower that has an education in either research or clinical trials, or it's a pharmacist that's just this data nerd. And they literally hired somebody called, you are the VP of our whistleblowing department that does nothing but audits ourself. Meaning we want you to find things that are wrong with this molecular makeup and find it before the FDA finds it and then bring it to their attention, almost like an, a self-auditing entity within these pharma companies, which I think would take them out of the uh, red ocean of pharmaceutical providers and move it to the blue ocean, where it's this mm -hmm. whole new concept of transparency and being able to say, listen, we're going to stay ahead of this before this ever becomes a problem. We're going to have our own people. And I know this is fictitious and people are probably listening to this and saying, yeah, whatever, rolling their eyes, that's never going to happen. But that would be a way to earn public trust, to say we have mm -hmm. in a division within our pharma company that makes multi-billions of dollars anyway, we fund this division with um, the purpose of finding something wrong. It's their job to find things wrong with our medications or the outcome or the long-term effects or whatever. But we have to come up with something new because our existing systems that are in place are kind of working but there's still pharma the movie is part of the teaching of the public that everything that's currently in place today is not um it, we can't just sit still we we can't just accept the status quo from a purpose of safety from a purpose of being able to afford medications and getting people that they help the the help that they need we see that the insulin market has taken drastic changes and now pricing has come way down in order to get people their life-saving uh, medications and diabetes management. 
What's your thought about the future of the pharmaceutical industry? And if if you and I could come in a room together and magically be given the the magic wands to correct things, what's something that you would change within the pharmaceutical market based on your experience with Pharma the movie? Well, I, th- I mean, I think your idea is great. If there was a company that was willing to step in and do that, like that would be amazing. And, and that's been part of the problem since the 60s, 60s is that how much are we allowing the pharmaceutical companies to self-regulate and are they self-regulating based on profits, which consistently seems to be the process and, and the problem. Um, the, the laws that went into effect in 1962 were designed to give the FDA a lot more oversight than what they'd had. But then, you know, all of these technology and insurance and all of these things that have evolved, these are really outdated laws that we're relying on. And what is exactly, is you know, are the FDA's mechanisms? Has the FDA gotten too cumbersome where it's just not really able to find these new cutting edge, you know, maybe smaller pharmaceutical companies who are more geared towards the transparency and trying to do the right thing? It seems to me that it's hard for them to even break into the market because you've got all of these top billionaire pharmaceutical companies that could just price them out, right? So the more that we could have some legislation that would be passed that would help these smaller pharmaceutical companies who want to do the right things and want to be more transparent, be rewarded for that and for their innovative technology, you know, to give them a chance in the market, I I think that would definitely help. It's, It's been hard because there's not a whole lot of legislation being passed on anything you know, with so much gridlock that we've had, there's, it's just all of the, everything is just kind of pushed to the side. But honestly, that would go a long way because right now the billionaire pharmaceutical companies are not forced to self audit in that way. And that's yep. why we're having these problems. Agreed. Dory Zavala, proud of your work. Um, we're going to be sharing this podcast as well as links to uh, your website, pharmathemovie.com. Uh, please come back and and share with us the progression of of getting this information out. After the movie comes out, I'd love to have you come back. Maybe we could even have a couple of pharmacists in the conversation and and just chime in. But very excited about great. this. We're going to be supporting uh, Pharma the movie uh, and sharing it through social media as well as our podcast feeds. But Dory, I wanted to say thank you so much for being on This Week in Pharmacy. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to come back anytime. It's been thank great. you. All right. Hey, thanks for listening in to This Week in Pharmacy. We want to make this more personalized to you, the listener, our favorite provider, the pharmacist, pharmacy technicians that are out there. Be on the lookout for us in Dallas at the Pharmacy Profit Summit Live next weekend. If you're going, make sure that you connect with us at the conference. San Diego, we are on our way. Brady and um, actually Nicole, I'm saying Nicole, my wife, Rachel, Rachel's actually my work wife, Rachel Medlock and I are headed to San Diego for the NACDS TSE uh, Total Store Expo. We're excited about that conference. Um, and then there are things happening this fall. We have Soft Riders annual conference. That's going to be the annual show in September, as well as the NASP, the National Association of Specialty Pharmacies, returning to Dallas. If you're listening and we're not covering something that you want more attention on as a pharmacist, as a leader in healthcare, as a pharmacy technician, you reach out to us to help us cover it. Thank you so much for being part of This Week in Pharmacy this week. Please share this show, schedule um, a time to talk with us. How can we make healthcare better through our uh, push of content based on pharmacist expertise? Please 
um, schedule, I mean, uh, uh, subscribe to the shows on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and um, give us a rating. And thank you so much for being a pharmacist. Thank you for watching This Week in Pharmacy. We'll see you next week with our audio version. And then the week after, we'll have a live version as we do now. Once again, This Week in Pharmacy, we're out.